0: You are listening to the Post-Atomic Horror Podcast with Ron Algar-Watt and Matt Robotham. Episode 24 covering The Immunity Syndrome and A Private Little War.
1: Kids, we're back (laughs) again, once again. For us, uh, from our timeline perspective, uh, of the year in the past, past, vortex. Yeah, I don't know some some kind of vortex. We were just here like two days ago. Yeah,
2: trying to get out of here. uh, Early preparation.
1: Yeah, we we got some plans this weekend, so we're we're doing it a bit ahead of time and uh shockingly, Matt, I don't, I don't want to speak for both of us here, but uh watching four episodes of Star Trek in a couple of days, uh, I'm not sick of it yet, are you?
2: No, I'm okay. This uh, so, uh I can think of much worse ways to spend my time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh we didn't can, we didn't I can think of better episodes of Trek to watch, but
1: uh Well, yeah, we didn't pull the best episodes, but uh, I think we did okay. Yeah. Fortunately, I did better than you. Well,
2: you, you did okay. Thing. I was bored. <laughs> Fortunately,
1: um, we basically flipped a coin on this one because we thought they were both going to be stupid. Mm -hmm. But it turns out mine was not, so uh, go team me. Damn you. So, that said, uh, let's go into the Immunity Syndrome. Sometimes I go into an episode with a horrible prejudice against it, based entirely on a one-sentence synopsis I read of it 20 years ago. The Immunity Syndrome is one of those episodes, and friends, I am not so small that I won't admit when I was wrong. But you can't exactly blame me for assuming that an episode where the Enterprise encounters a giant space amoeba is stupid. So we open with Spock feeling as though millions of voices cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. A good ten years, I should note, before that other dude pulled the same trick. (laughs) Turns out Starfleet believes in separate but equal postings for starships because the USS Intrepid has an all-Vulcan crew. Or, rather, they did. (laughs) Now the remains of the USS Intrepid have a crew of Vulcan corpses. (laughs) So that's why Spock is a little out of sorts. The Enterprise presses onward, eventually running into a space blob that they all decide to refer to as the Zone of Darkness. (laughs) Seriously, this phrase probably appears a dozen times through the episode. I'm pretty sure the yeoman responsible for running the label maker would stick a red Zone of Darkness sticker on the thing if she could find a surface to apply it to. (laughs) Gradually, the crew works out what the thing is. It's a space amoeba. I told you this already. (laughs) And Bones and Spock spend 20 minutes arguing over who should jump into the one-man shuttle to study the thing. Now, normally when I say such and such takes 20 minutes to happen, that's a sign that Matt and I got tremendously bored and started laughing at Mr. Hengus again. (laughs) But I'm going to be honest with you here. I would watch a full hour of Spock and Bones bickering back and forth in an empty room, and that episode would probably make my top 10. That's just how much I love those guys. Eventually, Spock draws the short straw and heads into the thing and finds things fascinating and logical, too. Meanwhile, Kirk hears Bones say the word antibodies, and making one of those crazy Adam West leaps in logic, decides to fight the thing with antimatter. Astoundingly, this works, and yet another seemingly harmless creature is destroyed without even the most basic attempt to communicate with the thing. And that is the immunity system. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this could have been a lot worse. Like I said, I I really thought, looking at this synopsis and, and, you know, reading various episode guides over the year, I just thought, oh, God, this is going to be awful. This is going to feel like an animated series episode, only it's going to be twice as long. Yep. But no, I actually quite enjoyed it, because they did that thing that, you know, when you have a dumb idea, what you do is you focus on the characters, and that's what they did here. Yep. And it really worked. These characters are great. It's a good-looking episode, too. It was, apparently. I mean, we're, at the moment, uh, Matt's watching the, the original 60s versions, and I'm watching the uh, newly enhanced versions, and apparently we were both quite impressed.
2: With the yeah, no, even, even, in the, even in the 60s, watching the Enterprise fly into the Omeva looks goddamn cool. Well, I, I was reading uh, Memory Alpha, which I know is usually
1: your job. I don't mean to steal your thunder there. But, My precious um... thunder! <laughs> well, have kind of, by default, become the research guy.
0: But, odd um, that yeah, very
1: strange <laughs> well, looking things up on the internet and bringing them up in conversation isn't exactly work, <laughs> but no, I was reading and apparently um the the visuals for this were either nominated or possibly won an Emmy like they were given special recognition because of uh because the effects were uh, better than usual, so that's pretty cool oh nice so but it, the uh, the restored effects were quite good as well. I don't know how closely they pulled off uh you know staying to the original but uh but i really I really enjoyed that. Um, I love the, the subtle irony of this, I've I've pointed this out before, but I always love the subtle irony of Spock being sort of the emotional one. Mm -hmm. He pulls off some really subtle emotional stuff, like under the mental strain of 400 Vulcan deaths, but it's never like really over the top or anything. It's just like, obviously he's, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's a little under the weather. He's a little, uh, you know, things have been better for old Spock. Yeah. And it's nice because the Vulcans are. While not exactly telepathic, definitely pseudo I don't know, what's the what's the word for that? Ah. Uh, Isn't there a word that means like telepathic? Oh um uh sort of or, I don't God know. oh goddammit. It doesn't matter. I'm sure they're, there's people they're, screaming they're at their iPods are. Right that's that's I think what I wanted, yeah. Okay. Um and, and I and Kirk even points out, well don't you know I thought you guys need to, you know, to actually physical conduct. I thought you need, you know, touch to be uh to, to actually read people's minds. And he's like, well, you know, 400 of them died all at once. It, it kind of, you know, kind of gets to you.
2: Let's see how well you do,
1: Bones. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> you jerk. But, but really, like I said, the, the, the bickering between those two was just great. Yeah. It always is. But it, it's one thing if they're picking at each other while they're working, but there was a lot at stake for both of them here. Mm-hmm. And it was nice to really hear them kind of back and forth. Like, well, you know, this is this is sort of a medical thing. It's a new life form, so I should go. And, well, you know. This is sort of a scientific thing, and uh, human emotion might blah, 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 so I should go. Yeah, but Vulcans died, so maybe I should go, you know, back and forth. It was, it was good <laughs> but we are,
2: Haven't we already got enough dead Vulcans? Yeah, no kidding. This place is lousy with bludgeoned Vulcans.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm really starting to realize, I mean, I always knew I loved Bones and Spock. I have always enjoyed that dynamic. Yeah. But I always wrote it off as I love the, the, the triad, the, you know, the, the trinity, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know what? You could take Kirk out of that mix, and I'd be totally fine with that.
2: Yeah, pretty much. I'm I'm starting to realize it's not the triad at all. It's just uh, it's just these two guys. Just show us the Spock and Bones show, starring Bones and Spock.
1: Yeah, that's fine. And throw Uhura and Sulu in there every now and then. And uh, yes, maybe Nurse Chapel. But that's yeah, (laughs) you know the rest of the. Hell, even take
2: the the occasional Scotty. Oh sure,
1: sure. I got nothing against Scotty, but uh, (laughs)
2: except when he's killing women brutally. (laughs) Oh no, not again! I must have been possessed. In fairness, he was hit on the head.
1: I mean, let's. Oh well. (laughs)
2: <laughs>
1: Gosh. Um I sure do hate all women. I found it very hard not to giggle when the word penetration and thrust were said about two hundred times through oh, the yeah. episode. Those of you who have uh, followed me from my old Transformers reviews know that I do love the word thrust. <laughs> thrust. Thrust. But they did they did say penetrate quite a lot as well.
2: What a what an episode for T'Kay to miss out on.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Um and that was I I have uh Usually I have little discussion points here, and I, I actually put that in the other episode just because it has been a while since we've seen Sulu. And I don't think we've pointed out on our show, uh, he was off filming the Green Berets with uh, with John Wayne. Yeah. While uh, while this run of episodes happens, and that's why Takei's not around, which, yeah, good for him, but, yeah. you know. He is missed. The, that's all yeah, I'm the, saying. The show is poorer for it, because the, uh, the only familiar character we have up front now is Chekhov, and we don't want to know
2: him. No, we don't like, we don't care what Chekhov thinks. No, not at all.
1: Fortunately, he didn't. He didn't mouth off a lot about amoebas being invented in in Russia and so forth. So
2: that was. Oh cool. yes, a uh, giant space amoeba. Yeah, came from Leningrad. Ugh, oh god! Shut you know mute. what? But we really need is someone to stick to the outside window like a Garfield puppet. How about you do that, <laughs> Chekhov? <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, I you know I guess because I, I most of my initial interest in Star Trek came from Next Gen and Deep Space Nine. I always think in terms of, of those later shows, I always think, like, why aren't they trying to communicate with this thing? Why aren't they trying to reason with it, see mm-hmm. what it wants? And they just
2: never do that, ever.
1: Now, Kirk doesn't care what it wants. He wants see? it out of his way. I mean, you know, if, if you look at it as, as the basic sci-fi concept that it is, it's a giant cell. Mm-hmm. That means it's something that's alive. That means the things that it's killing, are. it's not necessarily doing it out of malice, it's doing it out of defense. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's defending itself. That doesn't mean it's evil. It just means it's at odds with you. It that doesn't necessarily make it bad. But no, that's enough for Kirk. He
2: just... Yeah, no. well, I mean, that's it. always been the difference between Kirk and the uh, the captains that came later.
1: Well, yeah, and, you know, I mean, I, I definitely don't want to get into a whole Kirk Picard
2: thing, but... No, uh, there'll be time for that later.
1: But I think it, it speaks less to the differences in the characters and more in, to the differences in
2: the way people thought then and now. Oh, well, that's definitely a part of it, too, yeah.
1: I mean it's it's obvious that Kirk represented, you know, like the best hero that the 60s could offer. <laughs> and then and then we realized, oh wait, well, while while it is cooler to have someone more masculine swaggering around and doing whatever he wants, maybe that's not the
2: best, you know. Well, I mean, I'm picture. not maybe. I'm certainly not the first one to say this, but I mean, he was a cowboy basically. You yeah, know.
1: Yeah, there's there's some cowboy there, there's some like James Bond there, there's some, you know, like very classic uh, hero archetypes. Yeah. That, that doesn't mean you have to be
2: a dick. Well. No. Not all cowboys are dicks. Most of them are. Not all, of them. all the cowboys I've met are dicks. I don't know what nice cowboys, cowboys you're hanging out with. I'd like to meet them. <laughs> I don't think that you would. <laughs> they're, they're still
1: not very interesting just because they're nice. <laughs> Matt, this is, these are my friends. The friendly cowboys. <laughs> anyway, we'll get to cowboy the cowboy planet next season. Let's oh, not Lord. get ahead of ourselves here. We were looking at... Uh, we're looking at the rest of season two. We had Gangster Planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Nazi Planet coming up, I think, next week. And then uh, we have Roman Planet coming after that. Yep. It's like all in a row, suddenly, we have all these, uh, you know, Earth-similar cultures. Yep. And then next season, we have Cowboy Planet. So,
0: uh... yeah. Uh,
1: anything else? You I, else I, want I, to I noticed
2: a distinct lack of original planet, but... Uh,
1: well, yeah. That's, that's fine,
2: not... I guess. <laughs>
1: I you know I don't have a ton to say about this episode. I mean I loved it. I loved the character stuff, but mm. it's just there's not a, you know, there's not a lot to analyze. I mean, yeah. It was good. It was a, it was a great sort of bottle ship where they just mostly stayed or bottle show where they mostly just stayed on the on the ship.
2: But oh, there's not a lot more to say. This was the first time I noticed this season and I mean, I guess it's been around forever, but the the sets they have are huge. We oh, got yeah, to we got to look at engineer engineering is fucking enormous.
1: Yeah, I thought uh, I thought that was more of a conceit for next gen where Jordy had this this big area to to play in and he he could get up on the rafters and all that but no, Scotty's got the same area. Yeah, he just like he hasn't spent a lot of time down there as we've pointed out before and it's nice to see him down there and yeah, yeah you're right that set is huge.
2: Like, you know, you've got his office, you've got the lower area, the upper area and there's all dudes walk, working in the background. It's really cool. Well, and that's one of the things that I
1: liked about the uh, the new movie was um was engineering just looked like this enormous, you know, just ridiculous industrial thing that would be fueling this giant space machine. And I, Oh yeah. I I guess because I wasn't so familiar enough with the original series, I thought it it never really had that, but I guess it did. I mean, you know, the engine room is quite large, so uh, I was wrong, Hmm. but no, that is very cool. He was up on the, he was up on like the second level and you could see through this mesh behind him that the main engineering was down below and all kinds of guys around and it was,
2: it was great. And I mean, this is also a very like I mentioned before how much I like seeing the Enterprise busy, and oh, yeah. this this thing was lousy with extras.
1: Well, and that's the thing is like when they do a bottle show, as they call them, we're we're using their little internal lingo, but right, we've read so many episode guides that it just feels like a, a natural <laughs> thing to us. But that's what that means that they're just a they're bottle kinda...
2: episode or one that takes well, place they're... entirely upon the ship.
1: Yeah, they, an episode where they don't have to build new sets or go on location. Yes. To save money. It, it's nice because, obviously, they saved a little money, but then they poured that into extras and stuff. So, yeah, you get you get the feeling it's not just characters with speaking roles. There's, every now and then, it's nice to see when Kirk says, I'm responsible for the lives of 400-whatever crew, it's nice to get the feeling that there are probably that many people there somewhere. Yeah. Whereas, occasionally, it feels like he's responsible for the lives of four people. And he doesn't really care what happens to Chekhov, so. Well, let's be honest. Nobody really mm. cares as long as he doesn't reach captain, that's the important thing. Koenig barely cared what happened to Chekhov. <laughs> All right, anything else about this one? Or are you ready uh, to I think that's it. Your ridiculous episode. Oh,
2: God. Fucking, okay. <laughs> a private little war. God damn. Kirk, Spock, and Bones are exploring planet just like Earth-6 in the on-location sector, a world with human-like inhabitants who have yet to evolve beyond bows and arrows. Uh, this theory is disproved when one tribe pulls guns on another. Kirk uses quick thinking and the ancient art of hucking a rock at someone to save the gunless natives, and he and the rest of the crew beat Cheeks back to the Enterprise. They manage to escape, but Spock gets shot, getting green blood everywhere, which was kind of cool. A Klingon ship appears, and Kirk and Bones go back to the planet in disguise to see if they can discover where the guns are coming from. The fact that they haven't guessed the Klingons, that the Klingons might be d- dropping them off makes me an exceptionally sad panda. Arriving on the planet, Kirk is almost instantly attacked by a Mugatu, a large, white-furred ape with a single horn, three spines on its back, and poison fangs. Now, picture that in your mind, and I guarantee you that it is still infinitely more stupid in real life. Kirk fails his saving throw and is poisoned by the venomous fangs of the fearsome Mugatu. And and then Bones zaps it with a phaser and takes Kirk to to the gunless tribe's leader, Tyrese. Tyrese is an old friend of Kirk's, and he and his hot wife, Lady Macbeth, take them in. (laughs) Bones, in an effort to keep Kirk warm, uses his phasers to heat some rocks up. Lady Macbeth sees this and begins to covet the precious phaser. She convinces Tyrese to tell her about Kirk, and then apparently uses voodoo to cure his poisonous bite from the sinister and dangerous Mugatu. Kirk regains consciousness, and everyone discusses where the other tribe is is getting their guns. Kirk suspects that the Klingons have been selling the guns and reasons that they may be able to to even things up. Kirk and B- Bones go on a spying mission to the en- to the enemy tribe's camp and confirm that, yes, Klingons have been pro- have been providing them with guns. Uh, we also meet the main Klingon, who is the most Klingon-y Klingon we've seen so far. He, he looks awesome. Yeah, he uh, Kirk and Bones return to Tyrese's ki- tribe and begin explaining how to build and use guns. Tyrese is a hell of a shot, he refuses to kill anyone, so Kirk tries to convince Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth tries to seduce Kirk, and they make out while Tyrese watches and strokes his gun. Wait, that came out kind of wrong. Anyway, Tyrese runs off and another terrifying Mogatu attacks. Kirk fights it off, saving Lady Macbeth who then bonks him on the head with a brick and steals his phaser. She takes it to the enemy villagers who try to rape her because we haven't had enough of that lately. There's a fight between the villagers, and Lady Macbeth is killed. This pisses off Tyrese, who takes Kirk up on his offer of guns. Kirk and Bones return to the Enterprise, pleased to see that Spock recovered from being shot in the back over a matter of $80. (laughs) And then Kirk makes another stupid goddamn remark about the goddamn Garden of Eden. Ugh, enough with the Garden of Eden already. All the time with this. Oh, this planet we landed on. It's such a Garden of Eden. And then but something the thing bad is it happens. Never is. No,
1: it, it never is the Garden of Eden. Like it's not. I, look, I get that as a metaphor. I get the the perfect place where the people are wholesome and whatever. But these people were already fighting before you got there, so already the metaphor doesn't hold up. Plus, yeah. it's all rocky, and I'm pretty sure the Garden of Eden was just uh, was just green.
2: I just want to see them beam down to like like Yellowstone Park or something. Be like it's a natural Garden of Eden, Jim. <sighs> just like the Garden of Eden. And then uh,
1: a man and a woman in fig leaves come, you know, pop up. Then then yep. okay, fine. That'll be fine. Haven't <laughs> your people <laughs> and so forth.
2: <laughs> and then they uh, violate the prime directive by introducing them to pants.
1: <laughs> Very nice. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I guess this one was supposed to be a a, a, a thing about Vietnam.
2: Yeah, it's like, I mean, like one in... of those ones that's supposed to be like, oh yeah, it means something. Stuff. Well, you
1: know, I mean, I mean, the the and I don't, I mean, I know my twentieth century history okay, but I don't know the, all the particulars. But uh you know, basically, the Soviets were, were supporting one side, and we were supporting the the U.S. I say mm. we, I forget that you're not from here. Yeah, um, not my problem. Nor are many of our listeners. So I apologize for that. Uh, we, the United States, uh, supported the other side, and we kept arming, you know, both sides in an attempt to, uh, you know, have the team we were rooting for win. And so I guess I can see that as a as a basic metaphor. The problem is. Kirk is leaves totally fine with the fact that he's just given them guns and, and escalated the conflict. He's yep. the lesson appears to be we're we're doing the right thing in Vietnam, stay the course.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that ain't right. Uh I mean if you're gonna protest it, that's great. Using science fiction to make political commentary, even if I don't agree with it. Yeah. In this case, in this case I would, but for the most part, you know, even if I don't agree with it, I still like. That's one of the things science fiction can do well if you do it right. Yeah, unfortunately exactly. Star unfortunately, Star Trek usually doesn't. No. It doesn't here, it doesn't in Next Gen or DS9. It just it it's it's too broad, I think. They just they can't really pull it off. But here yeah. it's just ugh. Roddenberry apparently wrote this script and you could tell.
2: Yeah, no no surprise there. Yeah, a bit heavy handed. <laughs> they made a reference.
1: Uh Kirk mentions that he was there as a as a young ensign or lieutenant or whatever, or you know, like uh some years ago, like twelve years yeah. ago or something. And his like he had been there before and his landing party filed the report that ended up uh making the Federation decide to implement the Prime Directive. Yeah. Um So it's not that he wrote it, but he definitely contributed to the thinking
2: that, that made it happen. Uh, that seems um wrong. See, to me that makes a lot that makes it make a lot more sense. It's just like, well, I helped write the prime directive. Why do I have to listen to it? Yeah, look, it's branding. I get law, the huh? I, I get the intention. Yeah, look, I I'm following it. Maybe I'm not following it to the letter, but I'm
1: following it to the spirit. You know. Yeah, no yeah.
2: and who should know better than me, Captain Kirk?
1: It Good says day. written by James Kirk. So yeah, there you go,
2: James R. Kirk. <laughs>
1: well, that was my name back then. I changed it later. <laughs> Never mind. Um, the R stood for wrote the prime directive. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm 80% sure they went back to those Gorn rocks again. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they did like they shot them from a reverse angle so you couldn't see that one rock jutting out. Yep, the Gorn rock. But, you know, I've been to Southern California. I know there's more <laughs> locations than that. I've been to them. <laughs> you really can't pick another maybe more Eden-esque place. <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh that was that was unfortunate. Although, you know, I, I do I giving them credit. Okay, maybe it's not uh it it's not different enough, but it is on location. It's not just a well, cliche yes.
2: set, which is eh, all right yeah now they that's use fair. the paper mache budget on the caves,
1: yeah and that was that's the thing too when you blend uh the the locations with with filming on set unfortunately, I don't really buy that they're walking out of natural sunlight into you know what's clearly uh what's clearly a couple of stage lights and some paper mache that just that yeah work for me um oh you you didn't mention uh, dr Mbenga
2: oh yeah uh for most of the episodes, Spock is either extremely hurt or in a coma. Yeah, like and... you mentioned, at
1: the beginning he got shot, and they took him back to the ship, and he wasn't he wasn't down there for the rest of it.
2: Yeah. Uh, so they bring aboard Dr. – it's Dr. Mbenga. Yeah, they, the they say it
1: a little less awkwardly, but I like saying Mbenga.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Who is a uh, – uh, what is it? A Vulcan specialist, which is really yeah, cool. Yeah,
1: he's, he's – he, uh, I guess, studied, like, on Vulcan – and it's nice because Bones has repeatedly said, look, I don't understand Vulcan physiology. And, and you know, I'm not really it...
2: interested in learning, apparently. Well, part <laughs> of it is
1: part of it is him bitching at Spock, of course. But part of it is, I gather, you know, he's got a lot to do and he just doesn't have time to learn a whole new body. Oh, like oh,
2: yeah, he's got so much to do. That's why he's always dicking around on the bridge. <laughs> well,
1: you know, that's his day off.
2: <laughs> but, no, it, it is cool. You know,
1: there's as far as we know, one Vulcan on the ship. It's nice that they brought in a specialist just for him. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that there are any lower crewmen who are Vulcans because they put them all on in the Intrepid, I think.
2: <laughs> Separate but equal. But, uh, no, it was cool. Um, also, the Vulcans have to drink from different water fountains.
1: <laughs> well, that's unfortunate because I was about to mention that Dr. Mbenga is a black dude and now it just feels weird and awkward <laughs> to say that. Well, yes. But, no, I, I do like pointing out when, uh, you know, because it is the 60s and they are still not quite up to the... Uh, the standards of um, equality, political correctness, mm. whatever you want to call it, that we are now. It's I, I always like to point out when a woman or like a black dude or an Asian dude or you know someone who isn't a white male gets a prominent role, and it yeah. was it was nice that the expert was a black guy in 1968. Yeah. That was probably a big deal.
2: Yeah, that was really cool, and I'm pretty sure that character's come back. I, the name sounds really familiar to me for some reason. Well,
1: I've I've read him in a lot of the books, but I don't know if he's come back in the show. I hope he does, but I don't mm. know. I don't know that he does. Um, there's that bit where um, he says uh, Spock's in some kind of a trance, like the, the Vulcans sort of meditate, and, uh, you know, it's part of their healing process. When he comes out of it, do whatever he says. Just whatever he tells you, do it. He says yep. this to uh, Nurse Chapel, and he walks out. And so he wakes up, and he's like, Christine, I want you to hit me. I want you to hit me as hard
2: as you can.
1: Hit me in the ear. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so,
2: a Leonard so... Nimoy also would fight Shatner, by the way. <laughs> Very nicely done.
1: Um, so she's reluctant, of course. She's got. A, she's pining for Spock secretly, but also she's a you know she's a nurse. She doesn't want to hurt him. Mm-hmm. No, you, you have to snap me out of this. You have to hit me. <sighs> Fine. So she starts wailing on him, and then Scotty walks in. What are
2: you doing? <laughs> I can't leave you alone for a minute. You start hitting him. <laughs> no
1: wonder I hate old women. <laughs> so yeah, this that is was, exactly that was... what I
2: could expect from you.
1: I mean, it was it was a bit farce. Like, a bit of a farce, bit farcical,
2: but uh, mm-hmm. it was funny, I thought. I just, I always feel so bad for, for Chapel. Yeah, she really does get the shitty end of the stick most the year, most weeks. She gets, uh,
1: she has to hit spot, you know, she has to hit the guy she's got a crush on, or she gets soup thrown at her. Or it just, yep. It's one thing or another with her. You also, uh, you also, I mean, you had a lot to cover. I'm not, uh, I'm not criticizing your summary there, but, uh, you did leave out the, uh, hilarious, uh, accomplice of the Klingons.
2: Oh, the, uh, yeah. The, oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I,
1: knew, I knew it would, uh, there's a lot to absorb,
2: but uh, I knew you'd get it. This dude who looks like a combination of Gallagher and the it's magic guy.
1: <laughs> just, he's got that kind of face where you just, know he laughs like, ooh, and a uh, big bushy mustache. Yeah. Utterly, utterly, the very idea of him.
2: I'm just so happy to be working
1: with you, Mr. Klingon. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, he he was probably the first bozo. (laughs) And he painted over his mustache like, uh, like the Joker, like Cesar (laughs) Romero.
2: No! The Klingon!
1: Just ridiculous. The Klingon, on the other hand, oh my god, looked so great.
2: Perfect Klingon for, uh, for Yeah, if you can't do the
1: forehead ridges, everything else was just right. The the tone of his skin, the hair, the, the scowl, the facial, like the casting, casting a guy with a nice, just sort of deep set. Slightly primitive, angry-looking look yep. to it, you know, like uh, you know, kind of a, a, a protruding brow, and you know, yeah. just an evil-looking guy. He was. It was great. Yeah, um, I mean, we've and, seen uh, some
2: some good Klingons and some shitty Klingons, but th- this guy was by far the best-looking one of them.
1: No, and I was I was reading. Apparently, um, they used him as the model for Klingons in season three, and oh, ultimately really? for for Worf. And, and the rest, like he was, they thought this too. They thought he was sort of the quintessential Klingon and that guy's makeup and, and look was used, like I said, for the season three guys. And then eventually sort of that carried over to, to Worf and I guess oh. some of the guys in the movies. So Oh, cool. So they thought the same way. They thought, uh, well, we didn't quite get it right with this guy. This guy's close. Okay, now we got it. Mm-hmm. So that was neat. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um... <laughs> the note, like I mentioned, I, one of my notes here is uh, I miss Sulu, and I mentioned but, that already, but uh, yeah. I'd like to mention it again if I could. <laughs> oh, Al, I miss you
0: too. <laughs>
1: too. <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, I, I don't. we don't like to dwell too much on the uh, drooling over hot 60s chicks too often, but uh, mm. that uh, Lady Macbeth, as you call her, was particularly fetching, I think. Oh my god and it wasn't just the fur bikini she was just she you, you thought she was a bond girl and even if she wasn't she had the look of one
2: yeah i i did like though uh, everyone's put wearing like their furs and stuff cuz it's a primitive society her vest yeah. is made out of this bright orange fur i'm like did she <laughs> what, kill so a the hunter or something shoot her,
1: you know <laughs> well everyone's got guns now you get you know it's a whole gun safety thing you can't mm-hmm. get a license unless you uh, you wear the vest <laughs> or or maybe she killed a mugatu
2: oh god that would be nice Fucking Mugato's. I can't.
1: I mean, you're absolutely right. Describing it does not do it justice. I've only seen still pictures until now. It's the first time I've watched this episode. And seeing it move around does not make it any better. Just ridiculous. But, you know, again, I give them credit for
2: trying. Yep. It was certainly um, different. Yeah. It was definitely an effort. I say this because later seasons of Next Gen
1: and then into the other series, they kind of gave up and just put bumpy heads on humans everywhere. Yeah. And I always like when, even if they have no money, like an old Doctor Who, on old Star Trek, whatever, mm. when they at least try to make something that isn't human, try to make yeah. it a little exotic, a little otherworldly. Mm-hmm. And this was ridiculous and stupid and retarded, but at least they tried. Yeah. It could be worse. It could be it... those little Muppets you hated in the other episode. Yes. That's paw. <laughs> Ugh. so so anything else to say about this
2: one or uh... i'm still mad at cat's paw now (laughs) thanks a lot
1: oh no i'm mad at this one this was this was just
2: yeah this felt this one was just boring you know it wasn't only boring like i said if i
1: like when science fiction makes a political point and again i don't have to agree with it but no I i like i like when they use the metaphor of space travel to deliver some kind of a message that you know, you might not immediately get on the service, but they they totally squandered that
2: here. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, mean, I would have been it, fine with that, but, like, they didn't do it very well. I mean, in, in 1968,
1: 67 or 68, whenever the season was, I think it was 68, hmm. um, Vietnam was in full force, and you weren't allowed to go on TV. This was still the days where you didn't criticize the government. Like, you right. didn't just go on TV and say, I disagree with this war that, that my country is waging. I think it's unjust. It, like... The the job of science fiction and and other sort of metaphorical genres to me is to to do when you can't say it to to say it anyway.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he he really had an opportunity there to to make a statement and uh, he fucking blew it.
2: Well, but that sounds like it. hippie hippie talk to me, Al. But uh...
1: <laughs> well, again, I don't have to agree with it. That's that's where I that's where I get it. that's my <laughs> escape hatch for the hippie thing. Because uh, <laughs> I do live in Seattle. There's already two strikes against me. Oh God that's a that's a sports expression by the way I've heard that all right, so uh anything more about this or are you ready to move on no, I think we're I'm think I think we're done here, okay, so for the immunity syndrome in the future in the future, future starships will be segregated by race progress a woman's purse <laughs> flag on the moon flag on... how did it get there Flag on SETI Alpha five how did it get there <laughs> all right for uh for a private little war by the way, Ugh. stupid title
2: yes. It it tries too hard to be cute, I think. I should have called it the Mugatu Agenda. (laughs) Uh, All right. All right. In the future. In the future. future, Every planet with an even slightly pleasant atmosphere will be compared to Eden. Uh, This will give rise to the Federation Type E designation, which refers to any planet with trees and fog that is secretly deadly. (laughs) Nice. All right. Uh, My my quote of the episode, like I said, there was a lot of
1: great sniping between... uh, uh, Spock and Bones, but this one comes near the end of the episode when uh, when they realize that uh, Spock is alive.
0: Do not risk the ship further on my behalf. Shut up, Spock. We're rescuing you. Thank you, Captain McCoy. I particularly enjoyed that one.
2: <laughs> Oddly enough, I went with basically the same
0: thing. Of course, you did. Kirk here. Spock, Captain. I trust all has gone well. Spock, are you alive? An illogical question, Doctor, since obviously you are hearing my voice. Well, I don't know why I was worried you can't kill a computer.
1: That's you know, Again, we've mentioned this before, but uh, really, if there's nothing else to do, we can always fall back on DeForest Kelly and, and Leonard Nimoy doing something cool.
2: Yeah, Bones being glad that Spock is
1: alive. Right. Ugh, so there's that. Um, yeah, so that wraps it up for this week. Um, mm-hmm. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll
2: be back soon. Yep. See ya.
0: The Post-Atomic Horror podcast is published weekly and is available via iTunes or on the web at PostatomicHorror.com. This program is a co-production of Ron Algar Watt and Matt Robotham. and all original material contained herein is their intellectual property unless otherwise noted. All clips and references from Star Trek and related media are used without permission from CBS, Viacom, and/or Paramount Pictures. Fair use is assumed for the purposes of review and parody, and the aforementioned co-producers do not receive any form of profit for this effort. Listener feedback can be sent to podcast at postatomichorror.com. An on-air response is guaranteed.